Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Today, I want to preach a sermon entitled, Grace to the Sinner. Grace to the Sinner. And my mandate is in the story that you find in the 15th chapter of St. Luke. Uh, from the first verse, if you read the Amplified Version, the Bible says, Now the tax collectors and notorious and especially wicked sinners were all coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes kept muttering and indignantly complaining, saying, this man accepts and receives and welcomes preeminently wicked sinners and eats with them. Now, it's a story that I want you to create the best picture that you could. Jesus is in a meeting. He's talking to probably three, four, five, ten thousand people. And among them, the most wicked people, the most crazy people, the most notorious fellows, preeminently wicked. That means they were known. And these are the folk. We used to come in the meetings of Jesus to listen. Not all of them were converted immediately, but even those which do not believe just wanted to listen to Jesus, you see? And so imagine you are in a church setting like this, and then Connie, the rebel, you're here and you're seated, and then the guy walks in. How are you? <laughs> then he shakes your hand. Good to see you. Hey, you also pray from here. Then he walks to your baby. Oh, baby, hello. Boo -doo, boo -doo, boo then he walks and then sits in the fourth or fifth row. Pah. Now imagine the woman who is seated next to and then she starts to greet five people. You know? So that's kind of how Jesus' meetings were. Every crazy person was seated there. That is why I tell some of our religious people, church is supposed to bring in everyone. Somebody once said, oh, you know, I had a devil worshiper who once came to your church. They're supposed to come. Because imagine if they worship the devil, but still they are coming to sit in my meeting. That means there's something eternal trying to draw them. The thief, the murderer, the whatever sin there is. They're welcome in the church of Jesus. Why? Because that's where they should receive salvation. And they might not receive Jesus that day. But they keep coming. I've seen people who say, we refuse, you devil worshippers, go. No, I tell people, if a devil worshipper comes, some of them in meetings have arrested them. And then they come and confess and get born again. Some of them, I can tell, but let them be with us. Because maybe salvation can come through them. Why? Because the light in us cannot be consumed by the darkness in them. We know who we are. Tell your neighbor, we know who we are. So the Pharisee and scribe has a problem with Jesus Christ. And then he tells them this parable and he says, What man of you, if he has a hundred sheep, should lose one of them and does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, which is a desert, and go after that one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his own shoulders rejoicing. When he gets home, he summons together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my sheep which was lost and he says thus i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one 
especially wicked person who repents, changes his mind, boring his errors and misdeeds and determines to enter into a better course of life than other 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Now, let me first emphasize this. He said, if you read the language there, if we go back uh, to verses uh, 7, there will be more joy. You see? That means there is joy in heaven for the righteous. Okay? It's just joy in the heaven for people who live a righteous life. It's there. But there is more joy when we see Connie getting born again. But heaven celebrates the righteous. One time I was dealing with a story of a girl who has come from Kenya. She went through a very hard time. And in that time, as she was going through whatever she was going through, her father died. And then when the father dies and everything starts to crumble in her life, and then she becomes angry with God. So she books an appointment with me one day and narrates everything she has gone through, including the death of her father. And then she told me, Apostle Grace, what is the point of being born again when there is nothing God is doing? for me. I've lost my father. And as I'm trying to explain to her the deeper understanding of life, because you see, many of our believers in the world have not been taught how to deal when things don't go their way. We also need to have that conversation. You believed God for the healing of this individual and they died. How do you move on? Because we have people, the moment that happens, they're done with God. They just, we have people who can give up on God any day. He just needs to mess up once. He's actually on this radar of just mess up once. I'm out. I'm out. I'm not kidding you, God. I'm not kidding you. You see? Then she said, for me, I tend to think that in that Kenyan accent, that it seems God takes for granted the 99. That was her revelation. It seems God takes for granted the 99. Because we are living righteous. Suppose I've been living a righteous life. Why should this happen to me and my father? So it seems God is taking us for granted. I think I'm going to go back to the world. That means you'll look for me. <laughs> Put yourself in my shoes. I'm trying to get this Kenyan girl to understand. That's not how life works. God has not taken you for granted. And neither does your righteousness save your father's life. Faith does. Anyway, we went through a hard conversation, but I realized that some people think that God takes the 99 for granted because he attends more to that wicked preeminently sinner than he does for them. And I'm telling them this is the wisdom. The wisdom is that when you are in a house and you have a two-year-old child or a one-year-old child and then you have a 15 or 16-year-old child, you'll find yourself attending to the one or two-year-old child more than you're attending to the 15 or 16-year-old child. You see? And that ignoring is not that you don't love them. It only means that you have prepared them, nurtured them, positioned them enough in life to be responsible, to know how to walk out of danger, to know how to fend for themselves, to know how to care for themselves. They know how to walk around life and its journey. So if I'm ignoring this 16-year-old and I'm presupposed that I don't love my child, it only means that they don't need much attention like the two-year-old who doesn't even know how to use maybe the toilet. Are you following what I'm saying? And so are some Christians here. That there are things as you continue to grow in God, God will be silent about. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It only means he expects or anticipates that you know better and you know what to do. You know what to do. You follow what I'm saying? Then somebody has been in the faith for 20 or 15 years and 13 years and then they walk out like a person who was born again two days ago or one week ago. And that's a harder thing for us as men of God to reconcile. There's nothing that shocks like waking up after being with this man or person for many years and then they do or say something and you're like, wow. They actually never understood. They actually were not there. They were physically present, but they were not there. No man who has seen God can draw back. 
No man. That is why if that happens, heaven has no place for restoration for such a man. He says it is hard for those which have tested the powers of the ages to come. They've touched that good word. They know what it can do if they should fall off to be restored again. For seeing they crucify the Lord of glory again. That a person who has tested certain things in God. I've seen people who served God. Somebody was, you know, zealous for the things of God. And then tomorrow you hear that they no longer go to church. What? They no longer believe in Jesus. They stopped serving God because they were offended by, you know, brother so and so. And you're like, what? Have you ever asked yourself why when Paul is dealing with the boys that used to walk around them, one boy called Mark one time abandoned them in ministry. And Paul has a big war with Barnabas. And I think Paul and Barnabas separated on that front. And probably again, theologically or philosophically speaking, there's a language that could justify why Barnabas was fighting for Mark because he fought for Paul. He was that kind of man. He was the son of consolation. And on the side of Paul too, he probably has his own argument of how could you see all of this and still turn back? Because there are people, it doesn't matter how much they see in God, they can still turn back. Why the Bible says that if the deeds which were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would still stand. There are people by heaven whom God has given so much and done so much that it shocks the church and the Christ in them, or anybody who understands it, why they should walk away, why they should disengage, why they should give up and draw back. So there are people in whom God has done way more than he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he tells you, if I had done that same thing that I've done in you, if I'd done it to Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities would be standing up to today. I've been serving God for 20 years now. I have never been alive, healthy, and breathing. And I'm supposed to stand before you, and I'm not before you. Do you know how much discipline that is? Those of you who have known me for six, seven years, there has never been a day in your life where you woke up and there was no devotion on your phone. You think we don't go through trials too? We do. Because it doesn't matter what happens in our lives. When you choose the course of going with God, you don't draw back. I'm talking to you guys who are on and off. You're always on and off. Today you pray, tomorrow you don't. You understand what I'm saying? Today you're serving God, tomorrow you're out. You're playing. The kingdom of God is suffering so much and God has done so much in some of you and some of you are parents and you're leading children who you're showing the same way that this is what you do in life you give up and draw back if you can't do it for you do it for your wife do it for your children do it for the people who must see you do you understand what I'm saying because there's a price to the gospel the grace is available you see, we all wish otherwise. I preached Thursday, I preached Friday, I preached two services last evening. You see? But I'm here preaching two services. And after here, I'm going to attend other things too. And I have another people to pray with this evening. And I'm not complaining. Do you understand what I'm saying? But when you have a revelation of God, when you understand who God is, you start taking the things of the kingdom serious. Give the presence priority. Give the presence priority. Are you following what I'm saying? Praise the Lord. So anyway, these people have a problem, back to our story, with Jesus because he eats with the unrighteous, with the wicked, with the most crazy people in society. He eats with them. And the Pharisees have a problem. And so I went out in my life to search out with God and said, what was the problem with these Pharisees and the scribes? What was their real problem? 
wouldn't they see what God is trying to do and the love that he has for man. You remember the story of healing on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and they don't care whether the man is crippled and how long he has struggled. They say, you have committed blasphemy because you have healed a man on the Sabbath. How indifferent we can be. Jesus asks them a simple thing. He says, if you're a donkey or animal or whatever falls into, you know, a ditch on Sunday, do you take it out? And they do. They can take out their animal on Sunday to save it from drowning. If it's in a lake or wherever it is. But they have a problem that a man who has been in pain for years, a family which has been broken, a, a person who has carried, today I met a lady who has carried lung disease for years. She's in pain. She tells me every day of her life and one of her lungs is collapsed. As she's telling me her story, I think she's in 70 or something, she's crying. And my heart is reaching out to heal her. And then a Pharisee will come and say, you're healing on the Sabbath. Do you understand? Where do we think the heart of God is? Do you think the heart of God is in the Sabbath or it is with the people? He's Lord on the Sabbath also. And Sabbath can happen any day because he's Lord of Sabbath. Are you following? And then the Lord answered me and said, it is because human beings at the fall of Adam and Eve, there was a blindness that came on every fallen nature and an awakening of darkness that happened on the same day. There is a blindness that caught Adam and Eve that day and everything that is born of fallen nature. And there is a darkness that that man was awakened to. And because of that, we judge things according to what we see. We judge things according to what we sense. We only call it sin, especially because it's exposed to us. It is come out of hiding. When it is hidden, it is not sin. Or we forget that it's actually sin as equal as that which is exposed. You remember that fall? They knew they were naked. And what happens? They cover themselves with figs. God is telling them even that covering is temporal because it's in your own works. Sacrifices have to be given. Some blood has to be shed for your true cover. And that is why the Lord kills an animal and then skins it and dresses them. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Our true covering is in some sort of shedding of blood. You understand what I'm saying? That's how expensive sin is. It's not in what you do to cover yourself, but in that which their eyes before could not see. And now by fall, they see and can cover themselves. They were cut from a certain vision. They became blind from a certain light and awakened to a certain darkness. And human beings live like that. And because of that, many of us live lives of judging others only because we can see their sins. And we forget that we also have hidden ones and they're equally sin. A story is given in John chapter 8, the third verse. Again, it says the scribes and Pharisees brought unto Jesus a woman taken into adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, why are them calling Master? Why are they calling him Master? Are they calling him Master because they have come to learn? No. They ask him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? And verse 6 says that they, this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. See, so they don't call him master because they want to learn from him. They are trying to put a bait somewhere in which he should fall into and find condemnation with Jewish teaching. Because Judaism believes in Moses as the greatest prophet was, is, and shall be until the coming of Jesus. They don't believe that actually Jesus came. What you call second coming for them is going to be their first coming and only coming. 
You see? So when you say that you believe in Jesus, they say you're crazy. That's why Paul persecuted the church because he could not believe that these people say they believe in a Jesus who according to Judistic teaching is not yet come. So they want to trick him against Judistic teaching so they can find him at fault. And uh, eventually, as the scriptures tell us, if some of you have followed the story, there are the people who are behind saying, crucify him, crucify him. These are the folk that crucified Jesus Christ, not the Gentiles. It's them. It's Judaism that crucified Christ. Are we following? Anyway, Jesus stooped low down with his finger wrote on the ground as though he had had them not. Then when they continued asking, that means it was a consistent insistence. He lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Ow! He's saying that you are all dealing with a sin that is physical, visible, has been exposed. You who have no hidden one, cast the first stone at her. And again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. And when they heard it, being convicted on their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. He was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus has lifted up himself and so none but the woman he said unto her woman where are those thine accusers has any man condemned thee and she said no man my lord and then he said unto her neither do i condemn thee go and sin not that last sentence go and sin not is important he's not licensing her to continue doing that foolishness you've been delivered but go and walk out of that life it's not who you are that's the way of god However, let's go back a bit. Number one, if this is a woman caught in adultery, was she doing adultery to herself? No. She must have been with some man. So where was the man? Have you ever asked yourself that question? No. Because most of the Eastern nations and cultures usually have a very toxic masculinity point of view. It's a paternal culture. It understands men more than it understands women. And that is why even when he was feeding, he feeds 5,000 men and women and children who are not counted. You see what I'm saying? But Jesus came to change that too. Praise the Lord. In Christ, he says there is neither male nor female. That's not something a Christian man should be doing. That is not something that we should see in the Christian faith. Are you following? Anyway, the difference here between these two was that there was a visible sin and there was a hidden one. And they assumed that because theirs is hidden, it's not what? Sin. That is why some people enter outdoors, close themselves up, and when they close themselves up and they are sure the whole world doesn't watch them, they sin. You understand? Yet, when you locked the door, God and the angels entered with you. You understand? God and the angels, what? Entered that room with you. So you're more ashamed at what can see you physically than what sees you spiritually. Who should we fear most? Huh? So when you have a fallen eye, you find it so easy to do things in darkness because your eye or your conscience is not awakened to the presence of God with you in that room, in that place. You think that because nobody saw you, therefore, you are better than the person whom they've seen. And then you see these funny Christians who go on television and then they start accusing fellow Christians of their sins. Hey, crucify him. Why would he do this? How can a pastor? How can this brother? How can this sister do this? How can do this? How can they do this? No, 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 no. It is too much. You have yours too. It's just not yet come to the light. And how quickly we forget when you look at the church, we have lost people. We have lost people.
because we have not given them grace. I'll give you one story. I know very well this girl was in a certain church that was teaching the law, had high standards, and this girl got pregnant. And the pastor calls her and denounces her officially. Says, we don't want you in this church because if you stay, you'll teach other girls to become pregnant before time. This girl goes into the world, carries full term. She had a very nice voice, has a very nice voice. She's a worshiper, singer. And then she met a group of guys in the world and then they lowered her. And then she started singing songs, secular songs. And so one day me and a fellow met her and we were trying to restore her. And then she made the statement and said, your God chased me out and sat and loved me. He opened the door for me. When your God sent me out, sat and opened the door for me and loved me. And she said, those fallen people loved me more than the church did when I was pregnant. And she said, I cannot come back to church again. Who do you think misrepresented God more? Was it the girl who got pregnant or the preacher who could not see the seven grace and mercies of God, even to the fallen? Let's analyze the issues, even of our ministers today. How many Christian ministers we have lost in the church because we have judged them and judgment alone chased them out of church because the sting of the church was more painful than what the world could put on them. You've heard of a story of a wonderful pastor somewhere in Australia who entered a scandal and made a few mistakes 10 years ago. I don't think that that man will stand on the altar again with the way he was treated. And I believe mostly by the people who should have covered him. The world can judge us, but it's more painful when we judge our own. And I say to the people I seated with that when people come to church, they expect grace from the altar. And that's what we give. I know one who got pregnant before marriage. They're in this church. They came to me and they wanted to abort and I prayed with them and they've kept those babies. They have picked up, gotten married and moved on. I know one who was a thief. Last week, I met a young man whom I found and he was a thief, he used to snatch phones on Kampala Road and they used to beat up people almost to pulp to take whatever they had. And uh, we preached to him the gospel and then he met me while I was playing basketball and he started weeping. And he said, you saved my life because some of my friends are already dead. I was a thief. And he said, from the day of salvation, I have not stolen a thing. I'm working with my hands. I want to become something. You see, I know that one too, he's in the church. The woman who committed adultery in this room and cheated on her husband, even before he knows, I know it. And I've given grace. You see, the man who cheated on his wife, the child who did this, some of the things you don't even know about your own neighbor. We pastors carry all of them. The ones who beat their wives, they report them to us. The ones who have baby mamas, they report them to us. And we know you. And we still shake your hands and pray with you and stand with you and believe with you because you expect grace from the altar. But I was telling our people that the same people do not give grace to the altar. The same people who expect grace from the altar do not give grace to the altar. It's what happened to my Australian minister. They have written him off and that's his end. His gift has not ceased, but the very grace he has given them for years, they cannot give him. You're crucifying your own ministers. Even us here as pastors, we pray, Father, keep us, preserve us. Should anything happen on us, God forbid, these same people that we gave life every day will bury us. So, I am having a conversation with a certain apostolic group in this country to bring a hard conversation back on the table of our bishops and pastors. When a man is fallen, what do we do? 
Do we restore them or do we let them die? Do we leave them to the dogs so they'll uh, kill them? Because some of these people are still godly and something in there can be awakened. Some of us had a scandal recently of a certain, you know, man of God in the Anglican church, a well-reputable man, and he fell under one scene and he will never step on their altars again. And yet God saw with all his weaknesses and still chose him. You see what I'm saying? So it's almost as though God must be done to choose the man who should fall later or who will fall later and not choose some of them. Am I supporting sin? No. I'm only saying that Jesus, you preach on your altars every Sunday, ate with such men. He actually ate with worse. Salvation would not have come in the house of Zacchaeus if he did not enter that house. And when Jesus entered Zacchaeus' house, he didn't even tell him of his sin. He just ate with him. He just ate with him and Zacchaeus received Jesus. Repentance came because he sat next to a man of light. Are you following what I'm saying? Today, if you see what is happening in the church, it's appalling. Some time ago, we all watched in horror of a man of God who switched on his cameras after another man had died because he had not agreed with his doctrines. And then he celebrated on radio and television how this man who has killed many has died. The Bible tells us to mourn with the mourning. They don't need to be right, but they are mourning. They don't need to be straight, but they are mourning. What happened to the world? How have we even lost common conviction? I would understand if unbelievers do that, but I don't understand how a man who has been saved by grace can do that. Yes, the man probably has messed up in his life, but his children, show grace to his children. Because one day those boys will come on your door and they need the Jesus that their father could not receive if you say he's wrong. Show some sorrow to his wife, his brother and sister, who have never done anything. And perhaps he had a relationship with them and they too maybe were praying for his salvation. There's something in Africa called Ubuntu. That which makes you a human being. Why you cannot see a baby falling and they are weeping and bleeding and you walk away. It might be the baby's fault that they have fallen. But what makes you a human being is that you will feel that pain of loss. Dear to God is the death of his beloved. Every loss to God, however wicked it is, hurts him. And then he stood on the pulpit. Another one died somewhere in another country and then he started dancing. Scream, he has died. And I'm thinking, wow, what about his wife? What about his children? What about the innocent people who go to that church and probably have not yet known the difference and after that death, they'll still need to find their way. He's their priest, whether he's right or wrong. Show some remorse. But we live in a generation that is indifferent. One time I went to a pastor's funeral. He's lost his son. And while he's in a casket, his body is there. And people are praying. This man gets on the pulpit and starts attacking another man. At the funeral of another man's son. That was not the platform to attack his fellow brother. Not do it at your home. Don't bring it on a man's grieving family. But those are our pastors. Those are our pastors. Do you know why Fanero is growing? We got tired of those things. We got tired of such hatred and division in the church. We got tired of it. But now we need to have a conversation. What about our ministers who are gifted and we can restore them and they can still serve God? If God can restore David, some of have not even done what David did, but God restored him. He's big enough to restore any man. That's what I was trying to tell people one day, that one day there is this wonderful fellow the world attacked. And the Lord told me, reach out to him. 
because I only am big enough to forgive him. I was smitten. And I found myself blessing the man the whole nation was cursing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because that's just the way of God. We too have our issues. In our generation, you don't even need to be a thief. Some random bored guy can just wake up and say you're a thief and they will believe it and condemn you to death. You don't even need to sin now in our time. A man just needs to have envy over you and put a report on you. And we forget that the devil is using men up to today. Some of you should wake up and smell the coffee, even though you don't drink it. Pun intended. Do you understand what I'm saying? Today, you don't even need to be wrong. A man just needs to write an article on you. And you're already wrong. That's why I tell people, don't hear from others. Hear for yourself. There's a wonderful man of God. He went to heaven some time ago. He invited me in his church and some pastors called me, don't step on that guy's pulpit. Is this, is rotten, is what, is this and that and that and that. So I went to the Lord. The Lord told me, did I tell you so? And I said, no. And he told me, you go. And those men had promised me that the moment I step on that man's pulpit, Fanero is gone. Well, nah, nah, nah. It's many years ago. It's been about four or five. And then I sat with this man privately in a room. And then he told me so much. So much. And I was broken. I was broken. Because he needed the church. And when the church should have come through for him, they were all intending to kill him because they were envious of the gift of God on his life. And majority, first and second dimensional people, they don't tell the difference. Everything they read on the news must be true. But what if it is true? How long does it take for a man to be right with God if he has sinned? Repentance. He just needs to say, God, I am sorry. And heaven has written that out. And then you keep a record of what God doesn't remember. Are you following what I'm saying? And that's the church today we're dealing with. We have lost many and are losing gifts and Satan knows what he's doing because he knows if he can only put a scandal on you, the rest of the church is gone. Hit the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And some of you sheeps, when they hit shepherds, you become part of the people hitting the shepherds. And yet some of you even have more problems than the shepherds. If you just took time and turned this light on you, whoa, you're worse. God will keep us. God will keep us. He'll keep us. For that reason only, he'll keep us. Like David said, let me walk in righteousness for your name's sake. He'll preserve his name on us. He will. Praise the Lord Jesus. Years ago, some of you were younger or not born again. Some of you are not even yet in the church. In the early 2000s, there was a radio program hosted by a group of bishops and men of God. And they used to call it Operation Clean the Church. And these individuals had uh, gotten on, out of their way uh, to carry the mandate of cleansing the church of Jesus Christ as though his blood and word is not enough and they started to attack every church they agreed with and didn't agree with. And, uh, and I used to listen to them those evenings. And many of the points that they made, majority of the points that they made against the men and women of God were true. These people they were speaking about were actually teaching either false doctrine, doing ungodly practices in the church, and all of that was wrong. But the method with which they spoke, they never ministered with love. They had a mixture of emotions of envy uh, and trying to do good. And the bitterness in their heart led them to walk out of love with the people that they were fighting and the ministry that they were fighting, forgetting that God cannot rebuke without love. 
and they acted like they were in love, like some of them are acting on their radios and TVs, but the way they are speaking and acting, there's honestly no ounce of love because love covers certain things. And so, young us, we received lessons of what not to do in ministry. A few years later, some of us were a bit contemplative, usually want to go back and do audit on some works. And so one day I went and wrote the list of those men and tried to do audit on them to see those ones which were cleaning the houses, what happened. One of them, I think at one point even ran mad as he was cleaning other people's houses, God cleaned his house. <laughs> if you know what I mean. He what? He cleaned his house. <laughs> Another one I remember, I think one of them actually denounced the very faith he was fighting for and went into some other cult and doctrine that is contrary to the Pentecostal charismatic and evangelical teaching. The very guy trying to cleanse also lost it. Also his house was what? Cleansed. One of them, even his ministry fell, something like that. And also that one, his house. Then there was one in that period, his wife left and his marriage what? Died. His house also was what? Cleansed. So I'm very careful about being a policeman in the house of Jesus. One fellow one day was calling me, come, we need to sit on a table and cleanse. There is a lot of impurity. I told him, <laughs> I told him, man of God, I have many sinners to save. They hey, leave me alone. I have many sinners to what? To save. God did not call me to clean his church. He has his word and he can clean his church without me. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the challenge with our people. Their hidden sin is as though not sin. And that which is seen then is sin. That's what the Bible says in Luke chapter 6 verses 41. Why are you able to behold the mote that is in your brother's eye but perceive not the beam that is in thine own eye? In some versions, why do you want to remove a speck in your brother's eye when you have not dealt with the log in your eye. And this is the revelation. No man which can see a speck in another man's eye carries no log in their own. For you to see another man's weakness or sin, you must have a bigger sin on you to see it. That is why the Jesus who knew no sin refused to regard that woman's sin and forgive her. He did not condemn her. Do you know why he could not condemn her? Because he had no log. Who has understood? He had no sin of his own. Let him without sin cast the first stone. And all of them which carry logs or sins walked away. The Bible says from the eldest. That means that older one calculated the number of his sins and he was like, aha, perhaps also he had some, he had messed up with some people's wives. And then he said, aha, here, let me not cast what? Because I think from the eldest means he looked at how many years he had wronged God. And probably this woman as 20 or 22, probably it was her first time or whatever. And then he realized, no, I have a problem. But here's the mystery. For you to be able to criticize another man's sin, you must have a bigger one. And some of you, because it's an English issue, you don't understand the difference between the log and the speck, between the mort and the beam. And it's likened to, if you have a tree, for example, eh? and you're cutting wood, or you're using a saw, or this electric one, you know them, then those little small husks fall off, little small things. Eh? And then one of that falls into the eye. I'm going to ask the guy to put it up on the screen for me. Now, to help you understand, I needed to look for a picture to explain log and speck. So you have a piece of log here. Eh? You have a piece of log here. And then there's that little speck that has fallen, that little dust of wood that has fallen off and it has fallen in your brother's eye. So for you, you have a log in your eye. But you're telling this other brother who has a little small speck, you're telling him, open your eye. I'm going to cure you. You see that picture? I looked for the best definition on the internet and that's what I found. Some of you Christians, pastors, bishops, evangelists, 
you are like that. And if you can notice, that log has not only entered the eye, but it has also affected how the tongue talks. Some of you, you're like that. But Irene is pregnant. How many of you aborted? Well, because you took pills, that makes you safe. Some demon is lifting. Some pastors, they are thieves. They are sleeping around. Such a log can't be removed by hands. It needs a qualified surgeon. Well, they call it anesthesia. What is it? Anesthesia. Hey, anesthesia is it. You have to first die and they put you to sleep. They need to operate your brain. Such things you can't pull them out. But some of you Christians, you're exactly like that fellow with a hanging tongue and you're in church. God is this. This one is this. She doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. Every time you start judging people, Remember that picture. Remember that picture. Deal with your issues. First deal with your house. You're judging a married woman. Nobody has married you. When they start judging married people and you're single, first cook for two years and then come into people's marriages. Your marriage is failing you on another person's marriage. Your business is failing you in the newspaper reading about another person's business. You don't even have rent money. Hey, Gundi was arrested. You are stealing. You don't even have rent money. Why don't you fix your issues? Some of you are too badly off than the people you're trying to restore. One time I was in a pastor's meeting somewhere and a man stood up talking and I said, oh my God, the man teaching needs more help than the people he's teaching. And he doesn't even know that he needs more help than the people he's teaching. You can't be sleeping hungry and you're laying hands on a man who is a millionaire in dollars who forgot to make him rich. No, first fix it. <laughs> Some of us should understand this. I rebuke poverty out of your life. You're praying for a man who has food and a house and a car. In poverty, go. <laughs> Look at the beam in your eye first. How many of you have beams? Now, the revelation there is actually that wherever a man has fallen, they're short of a certain vision. Wherever is our fall and weakness, the shortness of vision of God. And that's the speck. You see what I'm saying? So, and God says, for you to even go into another man's eye and identify that part they don't see in God, you must be more blind than he is. Because it's not the spirit of God that leads you to look into a man's eye to identify a speck. It only takes the devil and a beam in one eye for you to be able to see the other person's eye. Are you following? And some of you, we are worried because soon the beams will be two. We have people now, the beam is here. We have one log here and another log here. And they say, you are sinners. You can't even see. Stop judging people. We were never called to change people. We were called to give them God and let him change them. Stop judging God's people. The Bible says, work hard with your own hands. Mind your business. That's what the Bible says. First Thessalonians 4.11. Study to be what? And to do your own work. And to work with your own work. As he has what? commanded you. What business do you have over who is sleeping with who? Wangi. 
you do your business. If you have a problem and you can identify it for us to help them, follow through for us to help them. And after we help them, mind your business. I'm not saying see sin and keep quiet. But I'm saying if you've told the pastor that these people are doing it wrong and we thank you because your spirit is trying, that's the spirit of restoration if you are really reporting for restoration. But if you report that we restore that person and you're doing it in the spirit of love, then don't finish and go in a restaurant and take tea and then report another person who is not even going to help that person. Never report anybody to anyone who cannot help them. It's none of your business. You mind your course. You still have your own journey. Who knows? Maybe two years later, you'll also get the same issue. I know of a girl who judged a certain man of God. And in just about a few months, the girl fell in the very sin. She was judging a man. He said, hey, even you, you can fall. I was shocked. She looked too righteous. She looked too righteous. There was a virginity movement that came in a few years ago by the wonderful apostle. And there was a group of young people who used to go sensitizing students in universities and secondary schools to keep themselves, which was a good cause. And among them was this girl who confessed to me that not only was she in that group teaching, but she used to criticize anybody who fell into sexual sin. And she told me once you did, she never even wanted to talk to you. And then years later, she fell into one and came to me and confessed that in one year, I slept with 24 men. That's why the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, underlying meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. God is trying to tell us that when you mature, the seed of the Word of God comes into your spirit and then it grows, the shoot comes up and then the blood and branch and fruit the life of salvation is a life of progressive knowledge and maturation. And as you continue to mature, what was a seed in you becomes a fruit. And that fruit becomes peace. That fruit becomes meek. That fruit becomes temperate. That fruit becomes self-control. It makes you a meek person. It's a sign of maturity. So when we get to Galatians 6, when he says that if a man is overtaken in a fault, let you which are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Meekness has come back again. It must be a fruit of a matured spirit. It's only immature people that run to judge without seeking to restore in meekness. That means it doesn't matter how gifted that man or woman is, they're not yet matured. I don't care whether they are bishop. I don't care whether they are prophetic apostle. I don't care whether they are evangelistic pastor. If a man can just lash out in aggression against another man's sin, that man has not yet matured because the fruit of the Spirit must make you gentle or meek. Give me the amplified of that. Galatians chapter 6. If a man be overtaken in misconduct or sin of any sort, Listen to Amplify. You who are spiritual, who are responsive to and controlled by the Spirit. If you're really not under some other spirit, he says, should set him right and restore and reinstate. Godly restoration does not only make a man <laughs> right with God, it reinstates him. There's a story in America, this fellow had a group of people, uh, friends used to pray with, they were accountability partners. And then this pastor falls into an adulterous scandal. Then he goes before his friends and then he says, you know what, boys, I've messed up. I've messed up real big and then he confesses his fault. And then these men of God, who also were pastors of very successful well-to-do churches, agreed to help him. And then they gathered with him that Sunday morning, stood before the church. And uh, one of them led and said, guys, this man has fallen in sin. And if he can deal with us, it's not a small thing for us to ask you to forgive him. 
But while he goes through the process of restoration and we shall reinstate him eventually, he's going to be with us, praying in our churches, attending as a church member, and we shall be with you. And these men preached in that church turn after turn for months until the man was restored. And then he was reinstated in the church and the rest is history. The church continued to grow today. If a man of God is overtaken by fault, they will not even answer his phone. I'll never forget the day uh, when this uh, wonderful television evangelist, Jim Becker, some of you have heard the story from America. He fell into some scandal of money and stuff and he became so ugly and they imprisoned him and the whole of America set him out for judgment. And then he says one of those days he's in prison and the guard comes and tells him somebody's here to see you. And he says, I'm not interested in seeing anybody because he was guilty and had condemned himself for having shamed the name of the Lord. And they insisted. And against his wish, he walks to the room. Then he finds the great Billy Graham. And Billy Graham hugs him and he wept. And Jim Becker says that was the beginning of his restoration. One time, these are things we don't want to tell. There was a wonderful man of God in Europe who was arrested. Big scandal hit in the church somewhere. And I was in my room praying one day. And the Lord told me that man needs a voice to save him. And I still want to use him. But the scandal was huge. And the Lord told me, take a flight. I bought my tickets. Visa, got my tickets. Went in that nation. Booked a day. Went into the prison cell where he was. And this man wept and wept and wept and wept and said, of all the men I helped in my life, the man for whom I've never done anything is here. And I gave him a prophetic word. And I tell you, right now, I have never seen a man as restored as he is. He's in prison, yes, but he's studying the word. He's in prison, yes, but he's writing notes. He's in prison, yes, but he's studying doctrines. I found him with the Joseph Springs book on grace and oh, I've understood this. And you see his face and it's as if he just got born again last week. He is beaming. And I thought to myself, who really was in prison? This man who was found and has found God or the folk outside who even don't have a clue about the difference. He just needed a voice from a man God was raising because for him it meant that God was still concerned to use him. Do such things, especially to people who don't expect you to love them. Love them. You'll be amazed at what God does. See, that's what makes me Apostle Grace. I'm not boasting, it's the truth. That's what makes me who I am. It's not the miracles, signs and wonders. No. Those miracles any man can do. But I'm telling you, there are people here, if we had not loved them, they would not be in church. I know it. I know it. If we had not dealt with them in love, some of them, they would not be in the church of Jesus anymore because they were broken either by the same church or the homes they came from. Extend the same grace and love to people. God must have dealt enough with you to overlook a man's fault and still choose to love them. If they should go away and say, we are done, we don't want you, still keep peace with them because that's what the fruit of the Spirit is, peace. You can't be attacking people everywhere, fighting them, and you're saying God has dealt with you. You're not dealt with. You've not seen God yet. God is love. God is love. Somebody shout hallelujah. Some of you need operation. But some spirits were living as I was preaching.
Father, help us. We repent where we've been so quick to judge those you called and assume wiser than you which made those men. Give us grace to only keep to our course. The Bible says to bear one another's burden and fulfill the law of Christ. You've told us that every man should prove his own work. Then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For our glory is not in the failure of men. No. It's in the progress of our own souls toward you because we too have issues to deal with. So help us keep our eyes only on that and our course. And to bear the weaknesses of other men while they're on the journey of restoration. In Jesus' name we pray and believed. Amen. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Wherever you are, if you say today, I want to be born again. Repeat these words after me. Say the words I'm going to say and pray them from your heart. Say, Father, I thank you because you died for my sins and you were raised for my glory. Today, I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm born again. Amen. This sermon has been brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number plus 256-200-999400 or email us at info at You can also find us on the web at www.fenero.org. Follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Fenero Ministries International. Or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our our weekly fellowships at the Uma Upper Gardens from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. and for our Sunday services at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. at the Uma Multipurpose Hall. Fenero, make manifest.